Today, we're joined on the podcast by Vishal Agnihotri, the Chief Knowledge Officer at Hinshaw & Culbertson, an AMLAW 200 law firm. Vishal has a background as an executive at KPMG and Ernst & Young. In this episode, we talk about the differences between two large areas of professional services, big law and the big four accounting firms. Vishal observed a few different lessons that large law firms can learn from the big four, in addition to certain key roles the big four will have a hard time replacing. She also shared her thoughts on the unbundling of legal services and how automation will affect the future of law firms providing value to clients. We hope you enjoy the episode. Vishal Agnihotri, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you, Anand. And so, Vishal, one of the big reasons that we wanted to have you on for, obviously, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is that currently you are the Chief Knowledge Officer at Hinshaw and Culbertson, an Amalot 200 firm. And before that, you occupied a very senior role in the consulting world. Today on our podcast, we're going to talk a lot about the similarities and differences between those two worlds. We're going to talk about some of the different business models and business dynamics. And then, of course, this collision of two worlds, right, that we talk about a lot on this podcast and that a lot of folks in the AMLAW 200 are talking about. But before we get into a lot of the details and drill down, I want to ask you, what has your career arc been? What has led you from the consulting world to your role as the chief knowledge officer at a large firm? So I've been in knowledge management for 21 years now. And as you noted, in various consultative and managerial roles in the big four accounting firms and now law firms. I started my career in a knowledge management boutique consulting firm more than two decades ago. So it was uh, almost 21 years ago. And it was a firm that was started by former McKinsey partners um, with a discipline still very young. The idea of knowledge management was still very freshly minted and largely followed by the strategy houses like McKinsey and Bain. And it was a research-based advisory at the time when the internet was still coming into its own and intranets were just one page deep and so on and so forth. So research databases people used after uh, lots of training and very carefully. So it was a fantastic experience of researching, studying different industries and consulting on new markets. And my clients used to be Fortune 500 clients and they would consult with us as third-party consultants on new product development and strategic innovation. What problems were they trying to solve? I mean, in that era, the kind of birth of the intranet and the intranet era and internet era, what were they trying to solve in going to you and your ex-McKinsey knowledge management consultancy? And what deliverables would you provide for them? Mostly, if you think about it, back then, information was not so easy on your fingertips. And it was just very, very difficult to piece together all of the information. In large companies, like GE was a huge client of ours, you also had conflicting agendas. So it was almost easier for them to use an outside consultant. We were billable, we billed by the hour. It was almost easier for them and unbiased to get this 
view from a third-party consultant on if they were looking at a new market, they would come to us, uh, that we would conduct feasibility studies. Uh, if it was something technical, we would also look at the landscape, say the German technology database and so on and so forth. And we'd show them a picture if they were going to a new consumer group, if they were opening into a new market, or if they were looking at a new product category. Back then, the information was so limited and restricted. If you think about it, the world of the intranet has actually made the world of knowledge management within a company so much smaller. Back then, this is a real life story. We would have a large client of ours ask us in the U.S. what their sales figures were somewhere in South America because they didn't have that connectivity internally. They didn't have a bulletin board and their methods of sharing were still very, very primitive. And I got to tell you, back in 1998, email was still very nascent. <laughs> there were things that were just not shared. And we, right. we, we covered that gap, if you will. And so after that consultancy, where did your career take you next? So after that, I moved to the big four. I moved to KPMG within their thought leadership research group. As many other consulting companies produce a lot of thought leadership based on market trends, whatever they saw within their client work, as well as opinions of the partners. So I worked in that group for a little while before I jumped on an opportunity Something that was very new back then, we used to call it knowledge process outsourcing. We were essentially working with third-party offshore vendors to augment our capacity for market research, competitive research, proposal writing, collateral design, CRM, data integrity, basically all of the various areas that we call business enablement today, very necessary in the back office, but at scale, it becomes very, very inefficient if we don't have it all centralized. So we use offshore vendors. Again, this is the time when development of technology happening at offshore was the norm, but we had not yet gone to the next level, which is business enablement. It was, I think, also coincidental uh, with the time of LPO and things being offshore for the legal industry to low-cost location. So I did that for a few years, and after that, I pivoted very deliberately to a technology adoption role. It was initially very new, very uncomfortable, but that's the only way to flex the muscles of change, and it was a good opportunity. It was at KPMG itself where we were rolling out on a global basis a new extranet, a new expertise locator, social collaboration platforms, and all of that was coming out of the knowledge management toolshed. So that was a fabulous opportunity to learn more about technology and learn how to translate for business how they could use technology. That was my first introduction to the famous Vishal Agnihotri, right? This was at uh, the ARC conference a couple of years ago, maybe three or four. Yes. You gave a presentation on exactly that topic, technology adoption. And yes. I think you were on really the cutting edges there, right? In the sense that just anecdotally, I've seen so much more interest in the last year or two in technology adoption. And you and I have talked about this in, in other discussions, but uh, I think maybe three or four years ago, a lot of the industry or you know, two or three years ago, a lot of the industry was interested in these new artificial intelligence or business analytics or litigation analytics kinds of tools. And the idea was, how do we evaluate which are the best ones? And then the, the industry kind of shifted to, 
well, okay, now we've identified the good ones. We know how to do a product trial. We know how to determine whether we like them or not. Now we have them. How do we now make sure they're not shrink wrapped in our garage for two or three years? And now Absolutely. the discussion has changed to where you were, you know, a while back, which is great. You created this intranet at KPMG. You've created these social tools. You've created this, this community-based thing internally. How do you get professionals to use it? What were your learnings? And I know this is asking you to distill down years <laughs> into a couple talking. <laughs> but I mean, what are your learnings? I mean, before you even left the big four to go to a law firm, what were your learnings with respect to how to get professionals to use newly obtained technology? So that's a really good question. I'll start at the point where I was leaving off with my experience at KPMG, because right after that, I took a role in Ernst & Young's America's Financial Services Offices. It's known as the FSO in New York. And I was the head of knowledge for that group. And that group, essentially, quote-unquote group, is 7,000 people in North America and South America. Just that group itself in EY is uh, larger than a lot of law firms that we talk about. And what was interesting was, so this was a very busy group. It was a financial services. It brought in 25% of EY's revenue, and it was a very hard-hitting, very driven group, but they were all billable. They were super, <laughs> super busy, and they didn't have time to learn new technology. So the only way we convinced them to spend the time to make it easy for them to learn something was in these ways. We made the value proposition of why they would want to use this because they would look smarter, better in front of clients. They could talk the talk of being one firm, of being connected. So our social collaboration tools, for example, we'd get the various teams. So if I would have my stakeholders, for example, were the lead partners on Deutsche Bank and UBS and AIG and MetLife and so on, if the teams under them, the 50 to 100 consultants under them, we're not connecting, we're not talking to each other, we were losing the benefit, and this is the crux of knowledge management, right? We were losing the benefit of actually working for the same firm. So if we don't talk to each other and we don't share notes, and nothing confidential, I mean, there's lots that's talked about in the client hallways, that is not confidential, but that's learning from the industry, that's picking up the threads and connecting with each other. So we use these tools to connect, both to sometimes to answer RFPs, so definitely for BD opportunities, but absolutely to raise the the overall quotient of what we knew about the industries we served, about the clients we served. Mind you, when you work in an industry-focused uh, group like the FSO was, the clients just have a very high expectation. They don't want you to share their proprietary information, but they expect each and every consultant to be coming back, not with just their own domain of knowledge and experiential knowledge, but also a piece of the collective wisdom of the firm, right? And that's the role of knowledge management. So how we drove the adoption of technology was to make it very, very clear 
how this was going to make them look sharper in front of the client and how it was going to further both their business as well as enable new business when they got it. Knowledge is definitely power, and it is so true in professional services. Clear correlation to to law firms, right? I mean, I I don't even need to jump in and try to make that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And so how soon after that did you move over to the law firm side of things? So I was headhunted out of EY into Ackerman. Um, so I was uh, with the EY a little less than two years when I moved to Ackerman. And that was my foray into the legal industry. And yes, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think law firms make excellent cases, no pun intended, for uh, the application of knowledge management. You know, it's uh, very similar. They have a richness of knowledge that's learned, it's built upon, it's managed, and it grows exponentially over time. Some of it has lost a turnover, especially, I think, in the last 10 years when there has been greater turnover in law firms than has been the case historically. Some gets wasted if you don't have a systematic capture in place, and some will be impossible to codify ever. But there is so much more that you can actually capture and use. And each lawyer has their own sort of tremendous treasure of knowledge in their practice area and industry. But it is so important to tap into the tacit knowledge because here's where we are in the marketplace. Was that a conscious decision when you were at ENY to say, hey, what are the big, ripe, maybe daunting, maybe challenging knowledge management obstacles out there? And you know, law firms presented themselves as, as high on that list. I mean, how did you even make the decision to leave the big four land and go to AMLA 200 land? I was not looking <laughs> when, when they came looking. So that's the answer. So they came looking. It was not an industry. When you're in the big four, I'll be honest, you're so content with that world because it's such a large world in and itself that you're always looking at competition directly from the other big three or maybe from the next year account, accounting firms. But when I did interview with law firms, it became very clear very quickly that, of course, it's a document-intensive industry. They don't like to make – well, it's another industry that would be tarnished if they made a ton of mistakes, just like the accounting industry. And you have people who have direct responsibility to clients – And they're paid by the hour for their professional sort of intelligence and for the the collective intelligence of the firm. So it became very obvious that it was another area, except it was probably a few years behind where the big four was. What were your first impressions coming from? This is like I'm picturing, you know, someone coming from this totally different world to this AMLA 200 world, which in this industry, a lot of us know very well. I mean, this is just normal to us, but I'm sure from someone coming from ENY, this just seemed like a pretty foreign and crazy world. I mean, what were your first reactions in coming and kind of descending into a law firm? And I don't just mean Ackerman or just Hinshaw, but I mean, this greater world of law practice among some of the biggest law firms in the country. One of the things you do miss when you leave a very large firm are the resources, right? So that is, I think, a universal statement I could make without offending anybody. It's just a fact of, you know, magnitude. I think the magnitude was something I definitely missed. But when I did 
make the decision to make the move, there was a very clear understanding in my head that I was now going to make a very different kind of impact. If never had knowledge, and actually both the firms did not have knowledge management before I got there. I was setting up a department from scratch. So sort of like an intrapreneurial effort. And I'm going to be educating people on what knowledge management is. Some of the struggles are the same because, again, you're working with billable professionals. People are very, very busy. The leverage model is much different. So in Big Four, it's definitely very pyramid looking, the leverage model. And I did not see that in the law firms that I am and was at. So I think that to me was a little bit of a shocker. But I'll tell you where the two worlds are very similar. They're both obviously partnership-driven, so there are some interesting patterns that go with uh, partnership-driven organizations versus a corporate model. But in law firms, especially in the U.S., there's a protection that's ensured by the ABA rules around non-lawyer ownership of, of, of law firms. I have, you know, just keeping tabs on what's going on in the industry, I do start to see law firms are starting to bring in executives without law degrees to help them with the operational side of the house. So that understanding that awareness is starting to come up and a lot of firms are going in that direction. And that kind of action or that kind of sort of even direction brings diversity of thought. And in some ways, it's almost easier to hit the refresh button at an organizational level if you bring in fresh thinking. So that's something that, again, the big four have been doing for years because they figured out that concept many years ago. And now I see the law firms are doing it as well. We both have clients that are sophisticated. The expectations of service are getting higher every day. What the big four was doing perhaps 15, maybe even 20 years ago was largely driven by some very defining moments in the professional services of public accounting. So if you recall, we had the Arthur Anderson debacle, which led to the Sarbanes-Oxley and, frankly, a temporary loss of confidence in public accounting. And back then, you know, the Justice Department went from being Big Ten at one time to Big Four today. But the Department, if you remember, so the Department of Justice still thinks, okay, Big Four are still very powerful and there's still a little bit of oligopoly and they don't want to encourage that any further. They don't want it to go from big four to big three. So they do put tightly regulated parameters around the big four. I don't know if you're aware of independence rules, but partners can't invest themselves in a lot of different kinds of companies for conflicts of interest and things like that. So it's a very, very tightly regulated industry. And I know there's a lot of talk of the big four encroaching the legal space. And I know just as we got on the call about an hour ago, (laughs) EY just announced the purchase of Pangea Legal Managed Services from Thompson. About six months ago, they bought out Riverview Law. So I think there's a lot of talk of big four encroaching the legal space. And I think that's largely because clients are now looking at legal space as a space where they can they can now more clearly see a disintermediation of services. Looking at this press release, yeah. it releases EY to expand legal services offerings globally with acquisition mm-hmm. of Pangea 3 business from Thompson Reuters. And as you yeah. mentioned, 
I mean, just a couple months ago, they purchased Riverview out of the UK. Why is this happening now? And from your kind of unique perspective as someone who is senior in consulting and now senior in knowledge management at a law firm, unpack all of this for us. Why is this happening now? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about it, so I remember when I was at EY still, Mark Weinberger, the CEO and chairman at the time, had released this Vision 2020 for the firm. And one of the goals was to hold on to your seat double the revenue by 2020, which is around the corner now. So they've been absolutely looking at growth and there's this obviously that much you can do organically out of, you know, once you've run out of that space, you're going to definitely look at serious acquisitions. Look, process, they do great. The big four, this is their livelihood, that's their bread and butter. And this manage legal services, they obviously see a very clear, sweet spot for them to move into. That's the major play. In the U.S., like I said, the ABA rules protect. They're not going to open up a law firm here. But to be honest, the way the marketplace is playing out, they can open up the law firms or provide legal services outside of the U.S. in this is pure speculation, but sounds like based on the acquisitions, it wouldn't be too far a stretch to say their biggest play is in managed legal services. That's what they're most likely going for. Why wouldn't some kind of rendition of this be the legal representation of the future? And, and by this, I mean the following. You get a big firm, a prominent firm, you know, to take on a litigation for you. Let's say they're hired by some Fortune 50, you know, big company, and you yeah. So hire E&Y to provide them process guidance and kind of manage how they provide the representation, right? So all the pleadings have whatever, AMLAW 20, AMLAW 200, whatever firm on them, but a lot of the kind of management and process thinking and streamlining is done by E&Y. I mean, why isn't that the representation model of the future? It is not out of the realm of possibility. If you think about it, Deloitte did this entire thing with Kira where they went deep into contract analytics and to some degree they were willing to cannibalize their own audits for small companies and now you have an automated audit tool very similar to a TurboTax on an H&R block or things like that. So yeah, absolutely. If they can bring to bear the power of both the automation the process and the scale, then they are unstoppable. Can they be successful sort of subcontractors or allies with big law? Absolutely. I think it's not outside the realm of possibility. Right. You know, I mean, if you look at this 15 or 20 years ago, a lot of the revenue from big law, especially on the litigation side, was coming from document review, right? Correct. <laughs> Teams of attorneys, maybe at the time, billing $200 an hour, what may be the equivalent now of three, three fifty, four hundred, and you'd have these just hordes of 100, 150 at some firms, associates, all reviewing documents in some large warehouse, right? Obviously, that's all been yeah. replaced. Reading briefly from, again, this press release that came out, as you mentioned, I think minutes before, uh, before we're <laughs> podcast, and this is an, a press release from ENY on the ENY website, it says the following about the Pangea 3 legal managed services acquisition. Quote, the acquisition will greatly enhance EY technology-enabled legal managed services in the three core areas of contract lifecycle management, regulatory risk and compliance, 
and investigations and litigation. What this appears to represent to me, and I'd love your take on this, is that they're kind of like gnawing away at the fringes, right? No one's saying ABA, we're fighting your rules. They're saying, hey, uh, there's a lot of stuff that is kind of legal adjacent that represents huge amounts of revenue for law firms that maybe Ernst & Young can do better. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, regulatory and compliance is completely in the ballywick of the big four. That is something that they have currently consulting practices around. So they do help with risk mitigation, a ton of regulatory and compliance. They're auditors at heart, right? So that's part of their DNA. That actually, they're very, very good at. And then to make up with the rigor of methodology and the power of analytics, that cuts through the need to build out a ton of specialized knowledge. I mean, if you think about it between accounting and legal advice, the one thing that's common in the marketplaces, the marketplace wants both. They want the specialized knowledge, which frankly takes years and years to cultivate and fine tune. Uh, Even if you were going to automate it, that's a ton of man years in terms of the culminated knowledge that's put together in an automated fashion. But the marketplace also wants process efficiency. We hear that, you know, it's, you know, those words are set to death, but they, that kind of work almost needs a very different skill set and an operational style. So you can't be sort of navel gazing or be too academic if you're going to be super efficient. You almost have to be driven in a very, very different way. So the marketplace is asking I think, of their legal service providers, both these capacities, the specialized knowledge they're willing to pay the premium dollar for, something that's more commoditizable, or God forbid, if it can be automated, they want process efficiency. Now, whether the accounting world provides them that or the big law provides them that, I think that's the race to see how how soon who gets where. That's the uh, race. You know, the incentives for Big Four are stronger because they're trying to expand their customer base. The incentive for the big law would be to just hang on to whatever they have, but at the same time demonstrate the value that they bring. I think they're capable of doing that, but I think a lot of large law firms have put serious effort behind creating roles, creating departments around value proposition, the the title client value officer is out there. So I think big law is trying as well, but yes, it's suddenly gotten very heated and it's definitely competitive out there. Let me ask a controversial question, that is... (laughs) Is the big four business model wise just better built to handle these kinds of challenges? And and by that, I mean the basis for, and really in a lot of law firms, the sole basis in which they conduct business is the billable hour, right? Jason Barnwell in a previous episode and some other folks on this podcast as well referred to it as units of wakeful human attention, right? The billable hour, right? You know, some big four accounting firms still hang on to it, but a lot of them, and correct me if I'm mistaken here, you certainly know much better than I do, but a lot of them have changed to a kind of a, you know, the same way that you'd scope out a project and provide a bid, you know, as if you were an architect or something, right? I mean, they could kind of, they could look at this project and scope it out, provide a dollar amount, and then execute on that project. As a sector, you know, in the big four, that is a lot more comfortable with increased optimization of process, 
of lowering their prices year over year as they optimize process and having full transparency outside of the billable model, are they just better situated to handle a lot of the, call it the majority of the legal work that actually is done in the United States? And the implications from that are terrifying, right? I mean, if you're, if you're an AMLAW 200 firm, obviously you don't want that to be the case, but I mean, do they have the advantage here? Well, I'll tell you this. So there's some things, I don't know how widely known it is for people in big law. There are some restrictions on the big four as well. So when Sarbanes-Oxley came out after the Enron debacle, what one of the major implications of that was that any client that is an audit client of one of the big four firms cannot be sold consulting services as well. So, for example, if one of the big four audits, say, the Ford Motor Company, they're now restricted because they can only provide consulting services to a certain degree. They can't actually go ahead and implement and things like that. So, in some ways, that's worked out for the big four because what they do is they take the Fortune 500, and it's roughly sliced four ways between the four of them. With SOX, you also have audit rotations in place, and it sort of keeps moving between the big four. But whoever has the audit for a company, it's wonderful renewable revenue, but you miss the boat on the other consulting services. Having said that, over the recession, the big four has grown its management consulting business so dramatically because it is the cash cow for the big four. Audit is like a 2 to 3% growth rate year on year. So it's not necessarily where the business is sort of getting its growth from. Are they completely immune? I can tell you the big four have always debated between maybe just dropping audit altogether, even though it's such a huge part of their identity in pursuit of just consulting. And if you think about it, when Arthur Anderson split and Accenture was born, they were all out consulting, right? So that's all they did. They became unshackled from the partnership model, from the partnership structure, and they have managed to grow at an unbelievable rate. So if you look, they're listed publicly. If you look at their share price alone, they were $29 in 2008. That was the start of the, you know, that was the year Lehman Brothers went down. And last year, that share price went to 159 From $29 to 159 in 10 years, that's like a 450% increase in, in share price. So in some ways, if you think about it from their lens, it's very attractive to go just all out consulting. Right. Whether they will do it or not, this is speculation on my part, but the audit business does actually, from a regulations perspective, hold them back. And then in the same vein, law firms are experimenting with different business models, right? They're spinning out subsidiaries. They're buying technology companies. They're leveraging using different staffing models. So I think in both cases, the commercial viability comes from the asymmetry that's between the provider and the consumer of advice. So the more you can automate portions of it, the less that you sort of reduce the gap in that asymmetry, the more the, the dynamics of the marketplace change. So I think it's a combination of globalization, outsourcing, 
and automation that is now pushing. And by automation, I mean, obviously, automating some basic tasks, but I'm going to throw in machine learning and, you know, sort of process automation with machine learning and AI and the rest of it as well. Some more sophisticated platforms. I think all of that put together changes the game, but it changes the game for everybody. <laughs> it just depends on how fast we're moving towards the goal. Yeah, this represents kind of an unbundling as well, right? If you look at this 30 or 40 years ago, a big company would have just a handful of law firms they use. Now they make yeah. something like 25 plus a couple big four firms, plus a couple other consultants, plus, you know, and, 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 and. Yeah. It strikes me that that's a very client-friendly thing, right? It was almost like unbundling cable TV or something, right? And it's setting it up <laughs> into the couple channels that you want. You want to shop around and find what you want on the market most efficiently and at the lowest dollar amount. And it seems to me that the rise of the big four here and in addition, the rise of law firms like Reed Smith, for example, spinning out Gravity Stack, right? And we've had mm -hmm. Brian Bratcher on this podcast talking about, you know, he's a CEO of Gravity Stack, right? It, it seems to me that if you're yep. a client, this is, if it's not a golden era, and maybe we're heading towards a golden era, being able to do what you want done as far as the delivery of legal services, better, faster, cheaper. You know, there's a great book put out by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He's the guy who wrote The Black Swan, which became very uh, popular. But there's another book of his called Anti-Fragile. And in that, he talks about how stressors are actually good for a system, even though you're feeling crushed at the time. <laughs> but it not just tests the resiliency of any system, he contends that it actually leaves it stronger, more, in his words, more anti-fragile. So he describes it as a positive sensitivity to the increase in volatility. So when you're in it, of course, it can feel like there is no business as usual. But all of these fundamental shifts, if you think about it, I, I've spent my entire career, well, at least so far, in professional services. And the challenge has always been. It's not new, Anand. The challenge has always been market disruption. It could come in many different shapes and forms and service obsolescence. So what is it that you're doing that is no longer necessary in the next, whether it's five years, 10 years? I used to be a researcher when I started my career. And I remember when Google came out, there were two things that happened. Google came out, you know, before that it was Yahoo and Alta Vista and uh, you're probably, you probably don't remember, you're probably one of the Google kids. <laughs> but well, I do. Before I, that, remember, it was, I remember product and AOL and Altavis, I remember all of them. Right, Netscape and, the, you know, and, and they were sort of trying out different things. When Google came out, you could clearly see the game has changed. And the other game changed, I remember when I was a researcher, it was all very database driven that was based on little CDs or little databases that you had access to, but they had not yet moved to the web friendly or SaaS models. When those started coming into the picture, I looked at all of that and I was like, oh my God, what I do for a living is suddenly very threatened. Now, I was wrong to some degree. You still need researchers today, but it has absolutely changed the perception 
of the value of information, the ubiquity of information, the access points, you still have to pay good money for good information. But it undoubtedly changed um, how, you know, how we handle information. If anything, now we have too much of it. It's exploded in both variety and volume. And we have to use other technology to wade through it. But I think what we're seeing in professional services right now is actually the benefit of accrued innovation. You know, it's happened year over year, decade over decade with every inflection point. And I I can line out three inflection points, at least in my career. But I think in the legal space, technology and the Great Recession have been the big market disruptors. And technology, frankly, and it brings in new players, that's threatening service obsolescence in many different practice areas. So legal or not, that's just the nature of technology. It just replaces um, certain activities uh, with automation. So it, it shakes up the business models. But yeah, I think this current inflection point, which I call my my career's third inflection point, is more about process automation, AI, machine learning, extracting more value from metadata. We're looking at aggregating data, search engines, visualization. The, the entire sophisticated platform of patent recognition, past data. I mean, you offer a research-based product, right? So you understand how the power of both predictive and prescriptive analytics is changing the game, even in research. So I think it's a very, very interesting time that we're in. I know we started the conversation from email and internet and intranet, and that truly was the, you know, the first inflection point and the second inflection point I know you and I have talked about was about 10, 11 years ago when the recession was just setting in and it was about social platforms. It was about crowdsourcing. It was about cloud computing, globalization, data analytics, mobile. I mean, all of these just came together to hyperconnect people, to connect people with knowledge and software became services. And the digital building blocks of putting it all together became so ubiquitous, so cheap, and it coincided with the onset of the Great Recession. What that did was it resulted in new business models. You now talk about the sharing economy, the collaborative economy, you know, the Ubers and the Airbnb. So it's a fascinating space. If you look at it just one slice in time, I think it can sound very frenzied. But if you look at the longer arc, and I, I think I just described the last couple of decades here, <laughs> uh, you'll see that all of that, I'll go back to my point about accrued innovation, all of that has led us to this point we are at today. I could talk to you about this for five more hours. I mean, that <laughs> there's the amount that you just said right there that I could unpack. It could go on forever. Let me ask you a question that will call on you to kind of go high level again. And, and the question, you know, I, I know law firms do a lot of things really well. You know, I think it's it's kind of in fashion to to kind of bash law firms, right? You know, what are law firms doing wrong? They're inefficient, et cetera. I think they do a lot of things really well. And obviously clients believe they do a lot of things really well as well. But consulting does a lot of things very well and maybe better than law firms in a lot of ways as well. I mean, if you had to kind of provide lessons to big law firms, and I, I mean the AMLA 200, and I know there's some 
kind of subcategories, obviously, in the AMLA 200. But what are some lessons that the AMLA 200 can learn from big four accounting firms in the way that big four accounting firms provide professional services? Map? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, they're accountants, so they, they went to school for math, and they're very good at it. <laughs> well, the rigor around process is a good starting point. I think it's a good starting point anywhere. You know, infuse that through the firm and not in a bureaucratic way, because that could be not the right way to go about it, with a nimble mindset. In the big four, uh, we would always be looking around the corner because our clients expected us to. It was just table stakes. You were you were the consultant, you were a, an advisor, a business partner. You were expected to look for us and look out for us. But I'll be honest, even though it was big four, they always also looked over their shoulders. So they were always open to looking at competition. And they didn't necessarily think in a very similar way, they didn't necessarily think the second tier accounting firms were competition, but they did look over their shoulders for what else could come and replace them. And I, I've used this analogy in a different interview about Janus, the god who's the god of duality because he looks to the future and, and he looks to the past. That's kind of how the big four think about things. They will constantly, I mean, we would have strategic initiatives uh, groups within the firm. And their sole reason for being was to look at service innovation. What else can we do? And I've heard them ask the question, like the head of audit asked the question, what if the clients came tomorrow and said, we don't want to get auditing done? Even if it was a radical question, they would throw it out there and they would say, okay, so what would we do, both from a business perspective, as well as to fill the gap? So they looked at the kinds of things that, say, Richard Susskind talks about in his books. He, you know, he talks a lot about the future of the professions and so on. And a lot of times he will come out and say the kinds of things that were done earlier by degreed professionals will now shift downwards to paraprofessionals. And frankly, it's pervasive in the legal industry, in the medical industry, which is kind of its sister industry, and the accounting profession. So I'll tell you, there's another, I'm going to reference one more book and then I'll stop. There's another book by Eric Topol called The Creative Destruction of Medicine. And he talks about the effect the polarization of the medical field will have, where there's a demand for super specialized expertise, but with the need for cost-efficient day-to-day healthcare. So remember when you and I were going to um, record this podcast a couple of weeks ago and I had the flu? Well, I had my first virtual doctor appointment during that flu. <laughs> It was an app that my insurance company was willing to cover, and they encouraged me to use. So it's an app on my phone and my iPad called Doctor on Demand, and I had my first virtual doctor visit. No tongue depressors, so he couldn't look into my mouth and tell me definitively, but we ran through the symptoms, and he was sitting in his white coat. He could see me. I could see him. He had a headset, and we had a doctor's visit. For day-to-day to determine whether it was a cold or a flu, that kind of worked. If it was something serious, yes, I want some specialized doctor to be looking at me. But, you know, there are lots of things for which you're looking at efficiency, you're looking at the cost of service, and you're making that decision. But even in professions where you thought it was absolutely impossible, that shift is happening now. I've talked to some in-house folks, some GCs at some companies, and they refer to these 
colloquially as the business cases and run the business right. cases, right? And so right. I, I, right. you know, that kind of polarization seems to be around the corner. Vishal, yeah. uh, I don't think we've ever ended a podcast on Janus, the god of duality, but I think this is going to be... <laughs> I really, really appreciate your time, Vishal. This has been incredibly interesting. I mean, this has kind of been like an appetizer, right? I mean, there's just so much that can come after this. And there's so many interesting concepts to unpack here. This has been kind of the survey course, Vishal. And there's no, <laughs> okay. there's no one that, that I could think of that could teach this survey course better than you can. So thanks again, Vishal, so much. We really appreciate you appearing here on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. You're very welcome, and I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you so much, Anand. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at anand at casetext.com tweeted us with the hashtag modern lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the case text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.